You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. One of the things that is always amazing about just culture and life in general is the way that language has the ability to change and to grow and develop, but also the things that we become very familiar with, language that we use that we have never used before. For instance, I was completely and totally unfamiliar with the phrase shelter in place, but I've used it a lot. Something like social distancing, things that at least in those terminologies, things that I have practiced over the course of my life, certainly, but not something I've ever said with that kind of terminology, with that kind of language, now is just a regular part of our vocabulary, a regular part of our language, and will be for a long time. Even after this is all over, no matter what it looks like on the other side, we'll remember the time of quarantine. We'll remember the time of social distancing. We'll know what it means to shelter in place. And I've even found myself using words and language to describe our current situation that is kind of new for me. Not that the word is new, but I've used the, the word unprecedented a lot in describing our current situation, our current circumstance. But I think I'm going to change that a little bit. Because while we may have some very unique details to our circumstances, and perhaps we've never had in the the history of our world, never had to do church like this before, and we've never had maybe this exact set of circumstances, these aren't necessarily unprecedented times in the sense of fear and panic and difficulty, even in the life of the church. But it's easy because, and honestly, it's just a part of human nature to view everything kind of selfishly or at least self-focusedly and myopically because this is our only experience. And so, of course, our worldview is going to be limited to our own personal experience or understanding. And so when we go through something difficult, when we go through something hard, especially when we corporately go through something hard, it's easy to understand why we would say, oh, this is happening to me. This is happening to my people. This is happening in my time. So it must be the worst thing that's ever happened. It must be the most overwhelming thing that's ever occurred. And in the Christian mindset, that's when we get into the mentality of, oh, this must be the end. This must be everything that Revelation was talking about. This must be the end times. This must be the apocalypse. It all must be happening right now because it's happening to me. And in fairness, we're not alone in that because almost every generation of Christianity has had some great occurrence that took place, some greater than this and some worse, that had at least a portion of the population thinking, yep, 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 this is happening to us, this is happening now, must be the end of the road. But this isn't the first time, nor is it the worst time that God's people have had to endure. But no matter what the season and no matter what the circumstance may be, it is still a difficult season. It's still a difficult time. But that doesn't change the Christian's ultimate mandate. And that is to worship. But how? How do we worship when we can't see God working in a way that we associate with worship? God doing good things and bring healing and rescuing. How do we worship when we can't see God's full plan and why this is happening? 
How do we worship when we don't feel like worshiping? Because life is difficult. Because even if it's just as simple as, I don't really know which day is Sunday anymore. And it were as severe as, I don't know where my next paycheck is coming from. Or I don't know how many hours I have left to live because I'm sick. How do we worship when we don't feel like worshiping? Well, the answer is simple and also very difficult at the same time. We remember. And we've talked about this a lot, but all throughout scripture, there is a call to remember. And this is what's enabled God's people to not only endure through difficult times throughout history, but also to worship God through difficult times in history to remember the truth of who God is and what he's done for us and how that affirms the fact that he is going to continue doing all the things that he's done throughout time and space and history. And as we remember what God has done and look forward to what God will do, that gives us a reason to sing. And so we're going to look at Psalm 136 this morning, and we're going to read through it in a moment. And as we do, we're going to read through it corporately. We're going to read through it liturgically. Now, I've got it set up on this slide like our normal liturgy goes. And so the part that's in plain text, I'll read alone. And then the part that's underlined, we'll all read together. But because the pro presenter was acting kind of weird this morning, that's the only slide that has the underline. But I have faith in you that you're going to be able to pick up on the pattern of the part that we're all going to be reading together as we look at what it means to worship God. And as we participate in this song that God's people have sang for generations, that's enabled them to get through some incredibly difficult times. And so from Psalm 36, this is the word of God. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever with a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever to him who divided the Red Sea in two for his steadfast love endures forever and made Israel pass through the midst of it for his steadfast love endures forever but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, 
king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever and gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state for his steadfast love endures forever and rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. And God, we do thank you that your steadfast love endures forever. And God, we just offer up our worship and our praise and our adoration to you. God, help us to worship you in all times. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. As we think about what it means to worship God and this call to remember all that God has done, The first thing that the psalmist calls us to do here is just to remember that God is. To remember that God is. So often we feel like we need a reason to worship. We need a reason to honor and to glorify God. And so maybe that's as simple as, oh, I got the job that I wanted. Oh, God has financially provided for us in an awesome way during this time. Maybe God has brought healing to my life. Or maybe it's just something to to do with the time. Oh, it's Sunday. And so I know that songs are going to be played. I know that it's going to be time to honor and to worship and to lift up God. And so now it's time to sing. Or maybe you're driving around and you turn on your favorite worship playlist. And so now it's time to worship and to sing and to honor and glorify God. Whatever the case is, All too often, it feels like we need a stimulant to worship, that we need something to prompt our hearts, something that either God has done or just a specific time and place in our life that leads us to worship God. But as we look at this passage of scripture here, that's not how the psalmist starts. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he is. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to God because he is the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord because he's the Lord of lords, because he's done great wonders, because he is the one who created the universe and hung the stars in the sky and gave the sun to rule over the day and the moon and the stars to rule over the night. Worship God because this is who God is. Long before God does anything for anyone in this passage, he is. And for the psalmist, that's enough to move his heart to worship. For the priest who would preside over this liturgy, that's enough for him to call the people to worship. And for the congregation that would gather there, that was enough for them to say his steadfast love endures forever. And I wonder how often our knowledge of God, just the simple understanding of who God is and what he has done in eternity past, long before we were even here. 
I wonder how often that's enough to move our hearts to worship. You see, the reality is, if we only worship as a response to what God has done for us, then in essence, that's idolatry. Because we're worshiping the result. We're worshiping the action. We're worshiping what we receive from God instead of worshiping God himself. In essence, that goes back to what Paul defines idolatry as when he says we turn from the creator and start worshiping the created thing. We worship our health and God's provision there. We worship our finances and then the things that go on in our financial life. We worship the things that God does for us that make us feel good, or we even worship the experience of worship itself. We should be able to worship God with no stimulant or prompting other than the reality that God is. And he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And who he is and who he has always been and who he always will be is so great and majestic and wonderful and awesome that it should move us to lift our voices in praise and celebrate that his steadfast love endures forever. And to do that, we have to have an intimate knowledge of who he is, not based on hearsay, not based on someone else's understanding of God, but by going to scripture time and time again, when we look at this passage, these first nine verses and really moving through the entirety of the chapter, Psalm 136 basically recounts the first seven books of the Bible as we see God going from creator to redeemer to restorer of Israel and to establishing them in their home. And so this psalm is born out of a deep understanding of God's word. And so too must our worship be born out of an understanding of God's word and who he is. It's this good theology. It's this, this good understanding and biblical literacy that can move our hearts to worship God, even when there seems to be no other reason to worship him besides the fact that he simply exists and this is who he is. And so we need to be good students of God's word and spend time daily in scripture, loading our heart and our mind with the truth of who God is so that we can remember who God is and worship him because he is, because he is good, because he is the God of gods and Lord of lords who alone does great wonders and has created everything. And because of his majesty, goodness, and power, we should worship him and praise him in all things. But not only do we remember that God is, but we also remember what God has done for his people. We remember what God has done for his people. And that next section there from verse 10 to 22 is this recounting of what God has done for Israel. The fact that he brought them out of slavery by conquering the Pharaoh, leading them through the wilderness, conquering other kings on the road to establishing them in the promised land. This is a very community and history driven psalm. And I think one of the most damaging things that we have done, that we believe, and that we teach as evangelical Christians is this idea that we are saved into a personal relationship with Jesus. And if you've been to Redeeming Grace before, there's a chance you've heard me rant about this, but I think it, it bears repeating. 
because it's a damaging belief that isn't taught to us anywhere inside of scripture. In fact, when we look at the way that Christianity is described, when we look at how Christians are described, we see these three B's, right? We're described as the body of Christ. We're described as the bride of Christ because we all take of one bread, the bread of Christ. And so this language is constantly communal. That when we're saved, even though it is a personal and intimate thing, when God saves us out of our sins and draws us by the Holy Spirit into a saving relationship with him, we're brought not only into a relationship with Christ, but into a communal relationship with the church, Catholic and corporate all over the world. And so maybe we can even get to the point where we think about, okay, I am in a relationship with Christ, with my church family or with Christians, even all over the world. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us that we're brought into a great cloud of witnesses, a great host of followers of Christ who trust in Jesus and have trusted in God for salvation, not just in the here and now, but throughout history. We're reminded over and over and over again that our faith and our relationship with Christ is corporate and communal. And the danger there of interjecting that American independence and isolationism into our faith is what happens then is we divorce ourselves from the history, the legacy, and the experience of the people of God. I have my own personal life and experience with Jesus, my own personal life and history with Jesus, and you have yours and you have yours and you have yours, and we divorce ourselves from this idea that we are a people. That we are an ecclesia, that we are a church, a group of people called out together by Christ and that we share in one another's sufferings, that we share in one another's experiences and we share in one another's history. And the truth is God has done amazing things in and through his church. And this was an important mindset and belief in the life of the people of Israel. There was a communal legacy in the Israelites, recognizing themselves as a people, not just together as a community, but as a historical people. And so as the priest would stand and preside over worship and read out this psalm, and as the people would sing this together, neither the priest nor the congregation, and nor probably the psalmist who penned these words, were present when God created the heavens and the earth. They weren't present when the people were in slavery in Egypt. They weren't present when God conquered the Pharaoh and brought the people out into the wilderness. They weren't present for the battles against Sihon and Og. They weren't present when God brought the people into the promised land. Some of the people singing this song weren't present in the promised land anymore. They would sing this song in exile. They would sing this psalm scattered and dispersed all throughout the reason. They would sing this psalm, maybe in their own temple, under Roman rule and occupation. They sang this psalm as pilgrims, but they sang it with a connectivity to their history and remembered what God had done for their people. Each generation of Israel found their faith in their history. And it was reaffirmed in their trust and their hope in God's faithfulness throughout generations. And we need to get back to that same kind of mindset. We need to remember and to know our history. 
Church history is something that every Christian should participate in and study and read about, not just those going off to Bible college and seminary. We need to learn about what God has done throughout the history of his church inside of scripture and beyond, and then be able to celebrate God's work and his salvation and his love from generation to generation and remember the God who established his church in the book of Acts through the power of the Holy Spirit. To remember a God who rested with his church through great persecution and oppression in the first three centuries of the church's history. To remember a God who brought together and formalized the church under the founding people who established our theology and our history. The God who endured dark ages with his people. The God who went with Protestant missionaries as they were being persecuted all the day long. The God who rests with Christians all over the world now, both in isolation, oppression, and persecution. The God who has redeemed and restored from generation to generation. We need to find our hope in that God and our identity in that people. Remembering that the God who has done all of that is with us also. And because of that, we have a reason to worship. We need to root our hope and our identity and the tradition and history of the church as God has continued to save. And remember the church in both good times and bad and the fact that God has endured with us and for us and brought us through those things and he's never left us, nor has he forsaken us. And so we remember that God is. We remember what God has done for his people. And then we also remember what God has done for us. I love the old song, Count Your Blessings. In part because I love the lyrics, in part because it's kind of fun, because it kind of sounds like a worship song written by Mary Poppins, especially that part where it slows down a little bit. It's like, count your blessings, name them one by one. And then it speeds back up, right? Count your many blessings, see what God has done. The clap's not necessary, but I think it adds something to it. And so that song is, is important because it's a call to action. It's a call to remember what God has done. In difficult times, it's very easy to forget blessings. We as a whole, I think I can broadly say this, not that everyone is pessimistic necessarily, but when bad things are happening, it's really hard to take our attention off of the negative. But the fact of the matter is, is that God is always working. And even when we can't see it, we know that God has done incredibly good things throughout the course of our lives. And in these latter verses, of this passage of scripture, the psalmist remembers that. It says, it's he who remembered us in our low estate for his steadfast love endures forever and rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. And Paul calls us to do that same kind of remembering, saying, remember, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were caught in this low estate. You were enslaved to sin. You were your own worst enemy. James says that we're tempted out of our own evil desires. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, rescued us by grace through faith so that we couldn't boast, but set us free from sin once and for all and gave us the ability to walk in the newness of life and gave us freedom in Christ. And that alone is something that God has done and God is doing in each of our lives. If you've put your faith and hope in Jesus that no circumstance could take away, 
And the gospel alone is reason to worship through any circumstance or situation. But he didn't stop there. God continues to provide for us. God continues to save us. God continues to affirm us and give us blessings. The answer is not if God is doing good things for his people, but are God's people paying attention to those good things? It's okay. In fact, it's commanded that we worship God because of what he's done for us, as long as it's set in that context of worshiping him because of who he is. And I wonder when the last time is that we've counted our blessings. Even now, even in the, the unique circumstances that we find ourselves in, even in times where people are suffering emotionally, people are suffering physically, people are suffering financially, God is still doing good things in the life of his people. So are we paying attention? And in those times when it's hard to grasp a hold of those, are we remembering the good things that God has done in and through our lives that have led us to this exact moment? Maybe we can't grab those blessings and put our hands on them right now, but we can remember last year when God did this, or we can remember five years ago when God did this, or we can remember when God saved us by his grace and called us out of sin and into glorious life. There is a plethora of things that each and every one of us can hold on to and find our hope in and find reasons to worship God and what he has already done for us. And so we worship him because of what he has done for us. And then finally, we remember that he isn't done. We remember that he hasn't finished what he's doing for each and every one of us. One of the things that I love about this passage of scripture is that it could have been about half as long as it is. And it still would be beautiful. And not only that, but maybe even a little more fluid. I mean, if you just read it without the, the, the intermission parts there, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, to him who alone does great wonders, to him who by understanding made the heavens, to him who spread out the earth above the waters, to him who made great lights. You get the idea. It's a beautiful flowing psalm without that congregational interjection after every line. But the people needed space to shout. The people needed space as the priest would recount all the glorious things that God is and that God is doing and that God has done with each line. The people needed a place to say, oh my goodness, his, his steadfast love endures forever. Every verse along this line is an affirmation of God's affection and a love for his people and a reminder that not only has he loved, but he continuously loves his people. And so because of that, each line elicited this response from the people crying out to God. Yes, I remember that. And he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And verse 25 and 26 says, he who gives food to all flesh and he who his steadfast love endures forever, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. And that language points us to the present and to the future. 
that he provides for all people here and now and his steadfast love, that same steadfast love will endure once and for all. And no matter the circumstance or no matter the situation, God has not ceased his work and he's not withheld his love, but he loves us in and through all things. And one day, this moment right here and right now is a time when we're going to be able to look back and say, remember when the coronavirus came through our world and it changed our lives radically. Remember when we were shut up in our houses. Remember when people were fearful and angry. Remember when people got sick and died. Remember when people felt lonely and isolated, but his steadfast love endures forever. And remember when he brought us out of that time. Remember when he brought us out of that season. Remember when he brought us in to new life. His steadfast love endures forever. But until that time comes, we have an entire history of God's faithfulness and provision to lean on, both in our lives personally, in our church, and all the amazing things that God has done in and through our church. I just think about how God has provided for us, even in this situation. I mean, my goodness, we were ready in a weird way because we were kind of homeless anyway. We weren't paying rent. We weren't paying a mortgage on anything. And so while we miss one another and we long to be together, God made it possible and easy for us to adapt quickly to this situation. We can think about all the things that God has done through the life of our little church and how he's provided in incredible and awesome ways. We can look through the history of the church as a whole and the people of God in scripture and be reminded of his goodness. But also we can just see and reflect on who God is in the core of his character and his being, that he is worthy of worship and praise. And that because of all those things, we can know that his steadfast love endures forever. And we can have a hope and a peace and a faith that is unwavering. And we can lift our voices and worship in all times. And we have a promise and we know this to be true, that when God's people worship, especially in the midst of times like these, it's one of the most influential and powerful tools of evangelism we could ever imagine having. Think about Paul singing in prison. Think about Christians going to their death with the praise of God on their lips and the power that has to awaken hearts to salvation and the way the Holy Spirit uses that to draw others to himself. And so in a time of negativity and fear and difficulty, let's be a people of worship and trust God through this, celebrate him through it and watch God work in an incredible and awesome way, singing through all of this, his steadfast love endures forever. But again, that can be hard to remember. So I have a little homework for you. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Whether you are doing this individually as, as a single person, or maybe you're married or have a family, 
What I want to encourage you to do is either sit down individually or with your family after we're done at some point in time today. And I want you to read through this passage together. And then I want you to write your own psalm that follows the same flow of this. And so I think the easiest way to do this would be just to write out a flow, right? So begin with remembering that God is. And maybe with your family or individually, again, sitting down and just writing a list of the characteristics of God that are, are just profoundly meaningful to you right now. And then under that, maybe write down some things that God has done for his people. Maybe things that you can think of in scripture, stories that are particularly profound or standing out to you right now, whether it's for individuals like maybe Daniel in the lion's den or for the church in the first century, the apostles, or maybe the people of Israel in Egypt. But also think about things that have happened in the history of the church. Maybe you want to even spend some time looking up some, some big things that have happened through church history where God has provided for his people. Think about things that God has done for our church and write those things down. Then I want you to think about some things that God has done for you and for your family and write those things down as well. And once you have a nice list of remembering who, that God is, remembering what God has done for his people, remembering what God has done for you, and then remembering what God will continue to do to make some faith-based statements on how God is going to lead us into eternity and the promised hope that we have in Jesus. Then I just want you to go back and whether you do this on a computer or, or handwritten, after each one, just plug that same line in there that his steadfast love endures forever. And then whether making up your own tune for it or just praying it together as a family or individually, I want you to pray through that Psalm and remember God's goodness and grace and use that as a motivation for worship. And I also want to encourage you if you, if you want to, and if you feel like it, then post that to social media or share that with somebody else or send it in a text message to friends as an encouragement, but let's rally one another up. Stir one another up to worship and praise. So that's your homework. That's your mission for today. At some point in time today, I want to encourage you, whether individually or with your family, to sit down and write a psalm declaring the steadfast love of God's grace and his mercy. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you and we praise you for all that you've done for us. And God, I just want to thank you for who you are and God, all that you've done. I pray that you help us to not forget that. And as we're getting ready to confess our faith, remind us of the fact that we do that, not in isolation, but all together. With the saints of God all watching this right now throughout all of our world and all over throughout history. And God, we celebrate you for your provision for your people from the first day to the last, for all the things that you've done in our lives and all the things that we know that you'll continue to do until you fit us once and for all for eternity and bring us in to the hope of everlasting life. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.